I've just finished reading uh, this book. Uh, it's a biography of a gimpy girl, uh, Lisa Miller. Uh, she did some of her primary years of school here at One Mile. Uh, she became a journalist uh, working for the ABC as a foreign correspondent and is now one of the presenters of the ABC Breakfast News Show. Uh, as with many biographies, it starts before the beginning. Uh, the first couple of chapters say barely anything about Lisa. It tells of her great-grandparents, grandparents and parents and her brothers and sisters before it finally gets to her. Uh, why? You'd expect Miller to think of herself as a self-made woman. Why does her biography, her autobiography, go back generations? I think it's because even in our culture, where we like to believe that we're individuals and that our identity is found within, the reality is our lives are profoundly shaped by those who've gone before, even those we've never met. Uh, between now and Easter, we're going to be digging deep into the start of Matthew's biography of Jesus. Matthew's biography starts in an unusual way. It starts, as we just heard, with a list of names, a genealogy. Now, that's not very good marketing, is it? If, if you're going to buy a book on Amazon, you click the sample and you look at the first couple of pages, I wouldn't buy this book based on a genealogy. It's not really uh, compelling reading, at least not the first time you look at it. But what we're going to see today is by just listing these names, Matthew's summarising an incredible story. He's summarising the story of God's promises, God's faithfulness to his promises, God's faithfulness despite sin and shame. And this story, as the backstory to Jesus, it gives us hope that there's a place for us in Jesus' story too. Uh, the first sentence in Matthew's biography uh, isn't really a sentence at all. It's a title. Uh, Christians have called this book Matthew's Gospel for almost forever, but that's not the title Matthew gave this book. I reckon verse 1 is the title not just of the chapter, but of the whole book. So have a look at verse 1, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abram. As I've already said, it's not the kind of title that jumps out to us, Genealogy. Some of you might be into family trees and love pouring over them. That's not me. But Matthew's not trying to get the attention of history buffs. His title is pregnant with meaning. Uh, the title, The Genealogy of So-and-So, comes from Genesis. After the prologue, Genesis 2.4 says, This is the account, literally, the book of the genealogy of the heavens and the earth when they were created when the Lord God made the heaven and the earth, sorry, the earth and the heavens. That's the title of Genesis. Uh, Genesis 5.1 is similar. What Matthew's saying is, in the coming of Jesus, it's a new beginning. This is the story of the new beginning, God's new family. But the beginning of this new family is not totally new. It's not separated from God's ancient story and ancient promises. And this is why it's the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Who are David and Abraham? Who, why are they important? Well, David is King David, the great king of Israel from about a 1000 BC. What's important about David is the promise God gave him. The promise found in 2 Samuel 7, one of the, the most important chapters of the Old Testament. 
God promises David the throne of Israel will always belong to one of his descendants. Uh, You should read the whole chapter, but here's the pinnacle verse. God said to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, this promise could be fulfilled by an unbroken line of descendants. But God speaks through later prophets to explain what he means. God wasn't promising a series of kings who die and are replaced by their son. No, God's promise to David is of a forever king. So have a listen, Isaiah 9. We heard this on Christmas Day, didn't we, or Christmas Eve? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. In other words, he's going to be king. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. That's David. Promised a son who will be an eternal king. Uh, Who's Abraham? Uh, For Abraham, we've got to go back about another thousand years. Abraham is the beginning of the Hebrew people. And this is, once again, because of God's promises. Uh, God's promises to Abraham has three bits. I remember them using the acronym NBL, like the basketball league. The promises are nation, blessing, land. Uh, Genesis 12 uh, is where this promise is first found. Once again, Genesis 12, really important chapter in the Bible. Let's have a listen to God's promise. Uh, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. A key for what Matthew's saying is that last little bit. Through Abraham, all peoples of the earth, the whole world it will be blessed through Abraham's offspring. So back to Matthew, by mentioning David and Abraham, he's bringing these two promises together. How is God going to bless the whole earth? He's going to do it through the forever king promised to David. The promise to Abraham is fulfilled through the promise to David in Jesus the Messiah. A Messiah means king it's the hebrew word that means the same as christ that's the greek word so there's the two great promises but you might be thinking what's that's great isn't it god makes promises but if you know much of the old testament record for most of israel's history you'd have to wonder about god's ability and willingness to keep his promises and that's the story that's summarized in the list of names we get for the next 15 verses now, we're not going to look at each each name, but the big shape of the story. The way Matthew puts together the story is going to be really familiar for those who did God's big picture with us in growth groups last term. Strangely enough, God's big picture got its ideas from the Bible. Uh, many people think the Old Testament's just a, a random bunch of stories. Uh, you've got your favourite Sunday school stories, the ones that have got nice morals to the kids. And then there's just fog and wilderness in between but Matthew 1 shows us the whole Bible is one big story and it's a big story about Jesus not morals 
Uh, Matthew shows us the Bible's about the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom. The kingdom of heaven isn't a nation with flags and an army. It's the people of God. It's God's people living in God's place under God's rule. And Matthew's summary of Jesus' story, of Jesus' family line, shows this. And he does this by shaping the story into three acts, three parts. It starts with the promise to Abraham. And from Abraham, in some ways, the story goes up and up. It goes up not because of the quality of the people, but because we see God's promises begin to be fulfilled. And that's why Matthew gives us the family line, family line, not by following the firstborn son, but following the one who receives God's promise. That's why it goes, have a look at verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. It follows the story of Jacob, not Esau, the firstborn son. I remember from Malachi last term, was not Esau Jacob's older twin brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. The story is about God's promise, God's faithful promise-keeping love. And many of the names on this list are familiar to us. Verse 3, Judah, once again, not the firstborn son, but the son promised to have kings as his descendants. And hinted at in that verse 2 are the 12 sons of Jacob, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the story goes on until we get to David, David the king. Uh, We're going to pick it up halfway through verse 5. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David isn't just a king, but the king. Not because he's first. Saul was first. He's the king because he's the king of promise. Like with Jacob, God doesn't choose the eldest son. He doesn't choose the tall, handsome bloke who might look like a king. He chooses an unlikely shepherd boy. And through God's promise, he is the king. The king whose descendant will be the forever king. After David, we follow the line of the kings of Judah. Uh, Next is Solomon, verse 7. He builds on on David's success. Uh, He builds a temple which, as amazing as his temple is, cannot contain the God who created the heavens and the earth. Uh, He is astoundingly wise. Solomon is astoundingly wise. And when you read Solomon's story, you think, maybe he's the one. Maybe, Maybe he's the forever king. But as good as he is, he's faithless. He breaks God's law for kings and he worships fake gods. And because of this, things keep going down and down. The nation splits in two. And David's descendants only rule the, the runt tribes of Israel. The story goes down and down until we get to the exile to Babylon. Have a look at verse 10. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Now, remember, this is the summary not only of Jesus' family on, this is the history of a nation, the history of God's people. It's a weird history. The only historical moment mentioned is one of great shame, their greatest defeat. It's not what we would record. If you're writing a history of, of your nation, you don't, you'd, 
You'd mention things like David defeating the Philistine army or the time God chased away the Assyrian army. No, it's not that though, is it? It's the darkest moment, the lowest point. Conquered and occupied by a foreign empire, a pagan empire. Such a shameful for Israel, it's shameful for Israel's God. Why mention the exile? Because no, this is a story of, of human sin and God's faithfulness. No matter how far down it goes, God is faithful. The promises are not forgotten. And we see this because even though there's exile, the story keeps going. There's a return from exile. There are names from Jeconiah down to Joseph. What's the impact as you read this list of names and if you know the story that it's summarizing? It shows human sinfulness and God's gracious faithfulness. Uh, if you look at the details of any man we know in this family tree, lots of these people, we just, these men, we just know by their name, but plenty of them we know their story. They are all sinful failures. Jacob is a manipulative con artist. Judah is such a great leader. He's, he's a great leader of his brothers. He manages to convince them, hey, let's not kill our brother. Let's just sell him as a slave. There's no profit in murder. There's profit in slavery. He's a horrible bloke. Solomon worshipped idols, as did many of Judah's kings. And that's just a taste. Each of these men, if we know anything about them, it's that they're sinful failures. And that gets us to Joseph, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, so that's not Jacob from way, way back in history, it's another bloke called Jacob, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. In verse 16, the pattern breaks. Do you notice it's not Joseph is the father of Jesus, it's Mary is the mother of Jesus. Joseph's just the husband of the mum. Oh, what's going on? Well, we saw it on Christmas Eve, isn't it? Jesus is born of a virgin. Although Jesus is truly human, he is born of Mary, there's also a real break in him from the infection of sin. Every bloke in this family line is infected by sin. But Jesus is in some ways disconnected. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit. But he's also connected to this line through both Mary and Joseph. He is truly the son of David and Abraham. He's the the fulfillment of God's promises to them. And at the same time, he's not stained from birth by sin. What we see is that Jesus' backstory is full of sinners. The reason Jesus is born of Mary, son of David, son of Abraham, is because he was born to save sinners. Sinners in his family line and the sinners who came after him. Which brings us to a really strange part of this genealogy. I mean, verse 16, yep, that's pretty odd. Virgin births, you don't get that every day. But the other thing that stands out and I think is is even more strange, biblical genealogies are almost always a list of dads and sons. They list fathers and sons, partly because the focus of the Bible is on the story of promise, promises about kings, and ultimately about the king, Jesus. But Matthew does something strange. He includes five women. Five women stand out because they're included in this summary of Israel's story. Uh, Verse 3, Tamar. Verse 5, Rahab and Ruth, verse 6, the wife of Uriah, not mentioned by name, but she's Bathsheba, and finally Mary in verse 16. Why are these women mentioned? Some people think it's because these women are notorious sinners. 
assuming Rahab is the same lady who helped the spies in Jericho, well, she's a lady of the night, not someone you'd mention in the family line of the holy God's promised king. But this theory is wrong because these women are not notorious sinners. Yes, they're sinners because they're human, but the way their stories are told in the Bible, they are streets ahead of the blokes around them. They are not notorious sinners, though they are women who carry the burden of shame. They're not great sinners, though they carry the burden of shame. Uh, So, for example, Tamar, in Genesis Genesis 38, Judah says, She is more righteous than I. Judah, who is both her father and her father, sorry, who is both her father-in-law and the father of her twin sons, and that hints at the shame she carries because she's been sinned against. Judah, who tries to shame and, and blackmail Tamar, acknowledges that she's the righteous one. With Rahab, she stands out as having more faith in God than the Jewish spies. There's nothing in Ruth's story to to hold against her. She is a pillar of faithfulness. Though, as someone widowed without children, many would have thought of her as cursed by God. And then we have Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the one taken by King David, who then murders her husband to cover his sin. People debate the culpability of Bathsheba. It's not the point. The way God tells the story in 2 Samuel, she is the victim of David's sin. The Bible is clear, David is the sinner. My point is, these are women who carry shame. Shame not primarily because of their own sin, though they are sinners, but they are burdened by shame caused by others' sin. Primarily the sin of the men listed in Matthew 1. And so part of why they're included in this story of Jesus is to say, Jesus is not ashamed. Jesus is not ashamed to be counted with these women. And we've got to hear this. If you've been wronged or shamed, if you feel worthless or unlovable, Jesus came for you. He is not ashamed to be associated with you. He is willing to have you in his family, so receive his love. And as great as this is, I don't think this is even the main point for including these women. I think they're here because they are outsiders. Not only outsiders because of shame, but outsiders because of nationality. They're not descended from Abraham. They're not Jews, they're Gentiles. And many Jewish people thought Gentiles were beyond the pale, outside of God's gracious promises, that there was no love for them. Even though God's promise is to bless the whole world through Abraham and Abraham's descendant. Somehow they forgot that bit of the most important promise in the Bible. These women show God is for all people because they are outsiders brought into the center, the kingly line of God's people. Tamar and Rahab are both Canaanites. They come from a sinful people, kicked out of the land because of idolatry, but they're brought not only into the land, but the centre of God's people. Ruth is a Moabite, an ancient ancient enemy of Israel. Bathsheba might have been an Israelite, but notice Matthew doesn't call her by name. She's the wife of Uriah. This is partly to remind us of David's sexual sin and murder, but also to focus on Uriah the Hittite. 
It's the Gentile's name who's included in the story of Jesus. The point is, Jesus came not only for the children of Abraham, not only for citizens of David's earthly kingdom, Jesus came for sinners of all nations, all languages, all ethnicities. Jesus came for you, no matter where your family tree originates. Jesus is the king of the whole world, which I think is the meaning of the final summary verse in verse 17. So have a look at it there. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So once again, we've got the big story of the Old Testament. It's a story of promises, promises to Abraham and David. It's a story of those promises being partially fulfilled from Abraham to David. And then the story of failure and sin as things go down and down to exile, down and down. The return's not much better as we've been reading in Malachi and Zechariah this year, down and down all the way to Jesus. But no matter how dark things get, God is faithful. The coming of Jesus, the promised king, shows God never gives up on his promises. He never breaks his promises. And I think that's the point of the 14 generations. Now, I wish Matthew had explained this a bit more. That he, Here he is. Oh, it's 14 generations. Yay! Uh, maybe it's his birthday. Maybe his birthday was the 14. Like, he doesn't tell us what's so exciting about 14. I wish he did. He clearly thinks it's important. He says in each stage of these three stages, there are 14 generations. Now, he can't mean this literally. If you compare Matthew 1 to the Old Testament record, Matthew skips some generations. For example, if you compare verse 9 with 1 Chronicles 3, there are some kings skipped between Uzziah and Jotham. I don't think Matthew's fudging history. He knows that you can check his work. He's not fibbing. He's making a theological point. 14 is really important for him. There's also something strange going on because there are only 13 generations between the exile and Jesus. We're not going to get into the weeds. There are lots of things written about this. What's the point? Some people think it's because 14 is 2 times 7. In the Bible, 7 can refer to completeness, 7 days in a week. And so if it's to do with 7, it could then link to the Sabbath and God's rest. Maybe he's saying... There are three lots of 14, which is six lots of seven. And maybe he's saying that now with the coming of Jesus, we are now in the seventh seven. We are now in the true Sabbath rest because Jesus came to give us God's rest. Maybe. Another good option is that 14 is David's number. In the Hebrew alphabet, D, V, D are the letters four, six and four. In Hebrew, you only write the consonants, not the vowels. So 4 plus 6 plus 4 equals 14. And if that's the case, then the genealogy is shouting to us, David, David, David. The one promised to David, the forever king, is now here. And then he goes on and tells us the story of the forever king. Now, Matthew doesn't spell out the significance of 14. So we can't be certain what he's, what he's pointing to. But what is clear is that throughout the story, the long story of God's people, a story full of sin and shame, no matter how low things get, God keeps his promises. God is faithful. God has come into our world in the person of Jesus, 
Jesus, the promised son of David, the forever king, Jesus through whom all of God's promises and blessings go out to all the world. Jesus is true God and true humanity, and this means he can be our saviour. The family line of Jesus contains sinners because he came to save sinners. And so this is the invitation today. Will you recognise Jesus as the yes to all of God's promises? Will you recognise that you are not self-made? You are part of a story. The question is, will you be part of Jesus' story? Will you receive him as king? Trust in him. Submit to him. Love him. Because he came for sinners like me and you. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your faithfulness, that despite sin and shame being everywhere, you keep your promises. We thank you that Jesus isn't ashamed to have sinners, those who've been shamed by sin, those who are outsiders. Jesus isn't ashamed to have us in his family. Help us know the great joy of receiving your promises and being brought into your family, that by faith in Jesus, his Father is our Father, his Spirit is our Spirit, and we can call him our brother. Amen.